There we are. Thank you for being here, Senator. This is so exciting. Yes, it is. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It is a true honor to have you with us tonight. Um, you're such an incredible state senator who I know many of us here in the audience are in deep admiration of. Senator Sidney K. Conlager represents the 30th Senate District, ranging from Century City to South Los Angeles and takes in Culver City, Cheviot Hills, Crenshaw District, USC, downtown LA, and a portion of Inglewood. Elected to the California State Senate in the March 2021 special election, Senator Kalmager has spent her career prioritizing equity and access for Californians, especially for Angelinos. She has authored landmark legislation in the areas of criminal justice reform, healthcare equity, environmental protections, and affordable housing, including the most transformative probation reform law in the country and legislation requiring implicit bias training for healthcare professionals, law enforcement, and court employees. Prior to being elected to the California State Assembly in 2018, uh, Kamlager served as District Director for California State Senator Holly Mitchell, who was our keynote last year at Persist, while also serving as President of the Los Angeles Community College District. Senator Kamlager lives in View Park with her husband, Austin Dove, her two stepchildren, and their dog, Kush, and cat, Kesey Whitepaws, which is such a great name. Thank you. Right here, right next to me. I love it. Thank you so much for being here, Senator. I have to say it's been really exciting to watch your political trajectory, especially in the last few years. Um, let's just start by having you tell us what inspired you to get involved in politics. So many people, um, but I will, uh, the one that comes to mind most often is uh, my grandmother. She was actually uh, the woman that gave me my first taste of it. I worked with her to help get Harold Washington elected as the first African-American uh, mayor uh, for Chicago. That was years ago. And she really sort of taught me the power of uh, using your voice, of quietly and sternly uh, standing up and talking about issues uh, that you care about. Uh, she showed me how people power um, in quiet but in mobilized ways can really work to generate change. Um, but, you know, there are also folks like, you know, my mom and my dad and my stepdad who are artists. Yeah. And, um, you know, artists and social workers and teachers and educators um, who often talked about the political landscape. I mean, it was my dad who first took me to uh, the um, end apartheid, free Mandela um, events across the country. It was my mother who, um, you know, took me to um, walk picket lines with her and taught me why it was important that we don't eat grapes and we stand in solidarity with the United Farm Workers. Um, so I lean on a lot of those stories um, because they're personal to me and they are very tangible um, to me and have helped guide me and, and give me the confidence to jump into this very murky um, ocean called politics. That's an incredible upbringing. Thank you for sharing that with us. I'm curious to know what successes and challenges have you had in your time in the Senate and in the Assembly? Let's see, there have been quite a few of both. <laughs> 
um, successes. Asking for and being able to chair the Select Committee on Incarcerated Women to elevate those stories and issues that are unique to uh, women who are incarcerated uh, in our prisons across the state. I uh, championed three implicit bias bills when I first got into the assembly. I feel like those were the precursor to some of the discussions now that we're having uh, in the policy space around implicit and explicit bias. I remember when I did them for the medical community, for our judicial community, and for our law enforcement community, I thought, oh, how benign. Um, and then things got kind of tense. Uh, and I thought, ooh, we're on to something. And then folks said, well, why even do this? And now a few years later, we're talking about implicit bias with our teachers and uh, in our schools and in our in the other workforces. Uh, AB 1950 is really important to me. It was the probation bill um, that I did, uh, I think, two years ago in the assembly. Uh, you thought people were going to support it, and then they didn't want to support it, and then you thought you had, you know... Um, everyone on your side, and then they left you at the altar, uh, and then ultimately we were able to get it passed and signed into law. And I tell you, we were fighting until the bitter end, until the last day that the governor had to sign the bill. So that thing had so much drama attached to it, you know, really from the start to the finish. AB 333, which I was able to get signed into law this year, it was a gang enhancement bill really important to me. It came out of the Committee on Penal Code Revision. I happened to sit on that when I was in the assembly. It came out with about 10 recommendations. This bill was one of the recommendations. And talk about fear factor. So many folks get nervous when you even say the word gang. It just shuts them down and they don't even want to dig deeper into the issue and look at the inequities, the lack of due process, um, the falsities and falsehoods and fallacies that are really integrated into our judicial and legal system that perpetuate, you know, the ability for the system to continue to um, incarcerate at higher levels using gang enhancements. Um, I had personal attacks, once again, up until the bitter end um, of that bill, you know, squeaking across the finish line on the assembly floor. Challenges. I had tough challenges this year. Um, I went into this legislative session championing a lot of um, health care bills and climate bills and housing bills and got slapped down. I mean, it was like, you know, heavyweight fight on the ropes. And you would think, well, everyone deserves housing in Los Angeles. So how is this bill about creating a housing authority for L.A. stalling out? when half the people in the legislature say they want housing. You know, when we are talking about a single payer and affordable health care and greater transparency in the healthcare field, why are my bills on, you know, drug importation not even getting a hearing? You know, why is my bill on making sure that you can't be denied care because of the cost not getting a hearing? You know, why did street medicine, you know, get vetoed? Um, so those have been some some tough lessons to learn about, you know, courage and, and where to find it. 
gonna say you seem absolutely fearless. Uh, I'm so impressed with your tenacity and your courage to keep pushing. I think at this point, I've probably liked every single one of your Instagram posts. I love hearing you talk about your work and reading about your work. Um, and actually, if you would, I would love to hear you expand a little bit more on um, AB 118, which is the Department of Social Services Crisis Grant Pilot Program. That's so interesting. Yes, uh, thank you. And thank you for the shout out about the social media. Sometimes I think, is anyone even paying attention? Because um, I have some favorites that I watch all the time and I'm like, they do nothing like what I do and they're so fabulous. So thank you for that. AB 118 started out last year as AB 2054, the Crisis Act, something really simple, born out of a lot of data and research from nonprofit organizations looking for alternatives to how law enforcement responds to calls. We know that 70% of the calls that come into 911 are non-criminal, um, non-violent in nature. We know that so many communities have fears around calling the police, not only because um, they're afraid of you know, being the victim of an officer-involved shooting, but oftentimes communities feel shame. You know, women who are involved in um, or people who are involved in intimate partner violence sometimes are afraid to call 911 for help. You know, I shared a story about my reluctance to call because I called in and I was shamed by the, the, the officer that was supposed to be there to help me. Um, studies have shown that uh, I think in the 90s, there was a practice that if a DV call came in to 911, that officers would wait almost an hour before they would respond to it in hopes that it would de-escalate on its own. We know that members of the LGBTQ community are fearful of calling 911. And we also know that most of the calls that come into 911 are about parking nuisances, noise nuisance, poverty, um, you know, a mental health episode, or substance abuse. Uh, they're crises, they're emergencies, but it's not about criminal activity. And so how do we find ways to de-escalate um, a crisis or emergency or resolve it um, without involving arrests, you know, criminal charges, uh, upending someone's family, or, you know, bias and stigma that then find their way into many of these, um, you know, um, interactions. Enter the Crisis Act, which would say we would, the state would get into the game of funding community based organizations to respond to certain calls so that 911, uh, so that law enforcement doesn't have to. We also know that law, you know, hello, law enforcement officers uh, don't want to respond to a lot of these calls. They want to be out there doing the big stuff that you see on TV, you know, bank robbers and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I say the state was getting involved in this or wanted to, or I was asking them to with this bill, because as you know, law enforcement, you know, sheriffs are funded through county departments and um, then police officers are funded through city uh, departments. And so this would have the state sort of put some money up to say, um, how can we figure out some alternatives to how folks are responding to um, these kinds of calls? As a local elected official, I want to say thank you for that, because often this conversation stops at the local level because they say there's no funding right, to change the system. So thank you. I was really excited uh, to read about this bill. You've been a vocal advocate for another major issue in California, and that is affordable housing. 
Can you tell us about California's housing crisis, including how it impacts people experiencing homelessness and why this is such a pressing issue? The housing crisis in California, in two words, is a hot mess. Uh, we have a state that is incredibly expensive. Uh, the cost of living is exorbitant um, in many counties across the state, whether it's, they're rural or urban. Um, and it doesn't matter if it only takes $50,000 to live, for example, in the Central Valley, if the average um, you know, job, you know, allows you to earn about 30, right? And so it might be, um, it's all relative, but at the end of the day, it's very high. We have um, not, we have been asleep at the wheel. You know, we had redevelopment agencies uh, or the redevelopment agency some time ago, Jerry Brown got rid of it. It was allowing uh, cities to, you know, fund, uh, projects that would help them. They could either do affordable housing or they could do commercial development. Many cities opted for commercial development, you know, not paying attention to the, the rising costs of housing. You know, obviously now you have issues with um, supply shortages um, and inflationary prices for a lot of the supplies that are used to do that. You know, we have a great tool in CEQA, which is supposed to um, protect um environmental uh, issues and communities, but we also know that to an extent it can be weaponized to stop really important affordable housing development. We have something uh, in our state constitution called Article 34 that really does prohibit uh, social housing from being developed. So that's something that we're trying to work on. And then we've had this burgeoning, you know, homelessness crisis where folks were moved out because of the recession, because of gentrification, because of rising costs, um, because of a lack of attention to figuring out how to, you know, build more um, uh, that is connected to transit, that's also connected to jobs um, uh, that people can afford. I say we do not have a housing crisis. We have an affordable housing crisis because I drive around my district and I see stuff being built all the time, but you know, it's $6,000 a month who can afford that. So the state has stepped in um, and we have, this year we threw billions of dollars um, towards uh, solving this issue, but it is a big complicated issue now, you know, and it will require different sort of bites at multiple sides of the apple. And it is going to require all hands on deck at all levels of government, finding ways to work in concert with one another um, to make sure that we can create or recreate cities that are affordable for folks uh, to live in. And so if you're in the housing space, if you're in the utility space, if you're in the land management space, if you're in the environmental justice space, if you're in the education space, if you're in the job training space, if you're in the transportation space, you know, all of those spaces do have something to lend to the discussion about how we create more affordable housing. It absolutely is an affordable housing crisis. Thank you for helping us reframe that. Shifting gears, you're one of a growing number of elected officials who have commented publicly on defunding the police. Please tell us more about this and the alternatives to policing that cities and counties could be exploring. 
So definitely AB 118 was my uh, foray into this space, right? To figure out how we can have community-based organizations respond to calls. You know, lots of stories I could share. A young man, Isaias Cervantes, who is autistic and deaf. Uh, he was having a, a mental, not a mental health episode. He was just, he has an unregulated body because he's on the spectrum. And he was, you know, having a moment um, because of COVID, because of a lot of the trauma that he was seeing in the news around George Floyd. Uh, his family called uh, the sheriff's department, the deputies, to come over and help. And um, in less than 10 seconds, they put him on the floor and shot him in the back. And so we don't need that. Um, and so AB 118 says, if those issues are happening, can we have folks that understand the disability community, you know, maybe take um, a portion of, a, a, of the L.A. city or a portion of a, another city and respond to those kinds of calls in concert with uh, 911 dispatch or using another kind of, you know, phone number um, to call for help. I want us to think outside of the box in that kind of way, because not everything needs someone with a badge and a gun who's not asking questions um, and not trying to solve or resolve, solve a problem or resolve an issue in a way that keeps the household whole. When you're calling the police, you're wanting an immediate stop to something. And what we fail to recognize is that, you know, the moment someone is arrested, they then enter into this other pipeline called the, the carcel system, the criminal legal system. You know, you're going to have a record. Exactly, Kush. You're going to have a record. You're going to have to go before a judge. You're going to have to deal with bail and if you can afford it. Um, if you can afford a lawyer, Kush, and are you going to be on probation? What will that mean for your family? Are you the primary caregiver? You know, are you responsible for taking someone to school or for work? Um, is everyone sort of just dependent upon your one car and you happen to be the one that, you know, puts the gas in it or, or pays for the insurance? You know, none of those things are things that people think about when they get upset and they say, I'm going to call 911 on you. Um, but a lot of people are thinking about those things and that's why they don't call 911. And so then what happens is they sometimes get are subject to even more violence or scary situations or emergencies. And so everyone should be afforded the same opportunity and right to ask for help in a way that will keep their family whole. That's also why restorative justice is really important to me because we have really blurred the lines um, when it comes to defining who is a victim and who is a perpetrator. And sometimes someone can be the same um, at the same time. Um, so I'm interested in, in those deeper discussions. I think one thing COVID, one of the many things that COVID has exposed is that we are interconnected and that we have to rely on other people, that isolation and disconnectivity is, is dangerous to our mental health and to our survival, and that not communicating is equally detrimental. I think the four years of having Trump has also revealed that if we are not talking to each other 
if we're not finding ways to have responsible discourse, if we are, are sort of distracted by bullies and intimidation and just hearing one thing and assuming that all of that is true and not allowing ourselves to be open to other kind of perspectives or ideas or scenarios, circumstances, people, instances, backgrounds, history, legacy, trauma, then we are really going to be destined for failure. And so as we rethink, you know, who law enforcement is, what they should be doing, and what public safety means for all of us equally, um, as we sort of unpack those questions, I am hoping that will lead us to a better space about, you know, how we do use police and if we do really need them and if we do where and why and how. Um, but those are deep questions, you know, and the answers are probably going to be um, sobering and complex. Absolutely. So well said. Thank you for that. You know firsthand the importance of having women, especially women of color, at the table. I've interviewed a number of local elected officials on the Persist podcast, and a common theme that's come up is there isn't enough support for women once we get into elected office at the local level. What is support like in the California State Senate, and what could make it better? I have to say I have been enjoying my time on the red carpet. Um, because there are only 40 of us, it seems like there are more women. Support looks like having a pro tem, a leader who is also a woman, um, who uh, knows what it's like to be a caregiver, a primary caregiver. Um, to have a chief clerk who is sort of the CEO of the Senate, who is also a mother, a working mother, um, who uh, is willing, who is open and interested in finding ways to be accommodating. You know, four days a week, I go up to Sacramento. I do not sleep in my own bed. I am not able to see my spouse and my kids and my pets. Um, and it's very isolating. And so you hunker down and you do the work that you're supposed to do while you're up there. But you sometimes feel either ashamed or really um, embarrassed to have the same problems that someone else does who is not an elected official. Um, do I have a right to complain about wanting to see my kid or missing an event that's really important to that child um, or being in my own home? You know, the response oftentimes is, well, you decided to do this job, so suck it up. But we wouldn't really say that to a man. And we wouldn't say that to someone else. And so why is it okay to say it to me? And why are we making it not okay for me to express those feelings of sadness? And, and so I think we can do better about making sure that we're creating environments where folks don't, don't have to ask themselves, is it okay for me to bring those things up? Um, and the more women that are in elected office, the larger the collective is and becomes to kind of share those sentiments. Um, you know, louder voices are stronger voices oftentimes. And so that's why I think it is so incredibly important to push for more women to run for office and more parents to run for office. Yes, um, working mothers and working fathers, but, you know, those that are in the trenches, those that are caregivers. Yeah. 
um, even if you're taking care of an, a, an adult or a parent, because you just bring a different perspective about time management, about listening skills, how you build consensus, how you figure out ways to work to for a solution and towards a solution. Um, and oftentimes those folks put ego to the side because the goal is, you know, taking care of that particular individual. And I think we need more of that, quite frankly. I knew you would have a great perspective on this. And I see a lot of snapping fingers in the chat. So thank you for that. Um, I could talk to you all night, but I want to be respectful of your time. So I have one final question for you. And that question is, what advice do you have for our audience, especially college students looking to get involved in the political arena? I'll say three short things. One, uh, volunteer. Volunteer for something. If it's a campaign to help somebody become student president or local city council or water board uh, or president, that's okay too. But get out there and volunteer because you'll figure out how to be part of a team and it will give you a great perspective on the logistics and the operations uh, behind an elected official and how to get someone elected into office. Experiment, try new things if you're in college. You know, if you say, I've always wanted to be, you know, an editor of the paper, then do that. But also don't be afraid to try to, you know, the theater world or don't be afraid to get into band or, you know, don't be afraid to do something else. I think getting outside of your comfort zone and being open to different things that you hadn't thought about will help you build a kind of muscle that you will need later on in life. The third thing is lean into your voice. You hear yourself all the time. The question is how often do you listen to yourself? You know yourself better than anyone else. And there will be times when the only voice you need to hear will be your own. And if you have not had practice listening to that voice, you will not hear it in the times you need it the most. Amazing advice. Senator Kamliger, it was such a joy to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you for being a trailblazer and a fighter and an amazing representative for so many of us in the state Senate. We truly appreciate it. Thank you so much. I had a great time with you and uh, welcome. I'd love to come back. And this oh. is little Casey, who's been sitting here taking my advice, too. She was like, I'm going to listen to my voice. And my voice says, you need to feed me some more. Absolutely. That's important. Please go feed her. It's great to see her. I'm glad she made an appearance, too. <laughs> thank, thank you so much, Senator. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. The Persist podcast is hosted by me, Denise Davis, director of the UCR Women's Resource Center, and is produced by Rosa Tejeda and the staff in the UCR Women's Resource Center. Check out our Instagram pages for links to more episodes at UCRWRC and at UCR Persist. If you'd like to sign up for our newsletter, please email us at wrc at ucr.edu. We hope that this podcast inspires you and those around you to get involved in the political arena because we know that who is at the table absolutely matters. Finally, if you have any ideas for who a future guest should be on the podcast, feel free to reach out and let us know. 